This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. It's Mexican Independence Day. The traditional grito was shouted last night, and now the country recovers after a night of revelry. So we devote our entire program to Mexico this week. We'll have an in-depth discussion over human rights, the drug war, and of course, politics. But first, Jim Singer is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Federal prosecutors in Brazil filed corruption charges this week against former President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, the popular politician often just called Lula. Prosecutors claimed Lula accepted more than $1 million in bribes, including a luxury apartment. But they also claimed Lula came up with the idea to skim billions out of the state oil firm Petrobras. Lula went on live television to refute the charges. They constructed a lie, false accusations. It's like a story in a telenovela, and the storyline is running out. They have rightly accused Eduardo Cunha. But what about President Temer for indirectly seizing the government? Cunha and Michelle Temer are leaders of the party that pushed for the removal of President Dilma Rousseff from office recently. Temer, who had been vice president, is now president for the next two years. But this week, Brazil's Congress removed Cunha from office for his links to the corruption scheme. Cunha had been president of the Chamber of Deputies and one of the most powerful politicians in Brazil. Turmoil in Mexico. More fallout from the controversial visit of Donald Trump to that country. Thousands of Mexicans marched in Mexico City on the eve of Mexico's Independence Day. They called for the resignation of the president. They marched until police broke up the protest. But social media are filled with messages from Mexicans calling for the president to step down. They blamed him for inviting Trump to Mexico several weeks ago. Trump, who is running for president in the U.S., used his campaign to insult Mexicans. Apparently, unrelated to the protest against the president, the head of Mexico's National Criminal Investigations Unit resigned this week. Tomas Zarone headed the controversial investigation into the disappearance of 43 students in the Mexican state of Guerrero. The students disappeared two years ago. The Mexican government says they were arrested by local police and handed off to a local drug gang to be executed. Independent international investigations accused Zerone of disturbing the crime scene before forensic investigations could begin. Parents of the missing students have called for Zerone's resignation for many months. A judge in Mexico City promises to begin deliberations on whether Mexico's top drug lord can be shipped to the U.S. to stand trial. The drug lord is Joaquin El Chapo Shorty Guzman, the head of the Sinaloa cartel. Mexican authorities have held El Chapo in a maximum security prison near the border for months, anticipating his extradition to the United States. U.S. officials say they hope the drug lord is sent to the U.S. for trial before the end of the year, but El Chapo's lawyers say they think the process could take years. El Chapo is known for his spectacular escapes from Mexican prisons. We'll have more on El Chapo, the drug war, and politics in Mexico coming up after this newscast. Earlier, we heard Brazil's former president talking about telenovelas and now tragedy from the set of one of Brazil's top novellas. 
Domingos Montanier drowned while on location for Brazil's top novela, a novela called Vejo Chico. The novela star was swimming with a co-star after a day of shooting scenes, when the river's strong current swept him away. Although his co-star called for help, help was slow in coming because bystanders thought it was part of a scene from the telenovela. Montagnier was 54 years old. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jim Singer. A pause to remember Domingos Montagnier. And now our shout out to listeners in Manhattan, Kansas. Our listening group in Manhattan, Kansas was our third largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in Northern Virginia, and Guatemala City. So we say thank you very much to all of our listeners at Kansas State University and Fort Riley in Central Kansas. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners elsewhere around the globe. And now we return to Mexico. As we heard earlier, Enrique Peña Nieto, the president of Mexico, is in hot water over his hosting of U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump. Peña Nieto has already lost Finance Minister Luis Videgaray in the post-Trump uproar, and various others have threatened to quit. So this week, we feature an in-depth discussion with Maureen Meyer of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, about politics, the drug war, and human rights in Mexico. She joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. And I think with this election cycle, we certainly saw since Trump even announced his candidacy last year, uh, a growing awareness of him and growing concern because, as you recall, the one of the first things that Donald Trump said um, launching his campaign was disparaging against Mexicans and immigrants, naming them as criminals and rapists and calling for building a wall between the two countries. And I think what we've seen since then has been a Mexican government struggling to figure out the best way to respond to this. And we certainly saw that as um, Mr. Trump gained in popularity in the United States and a sense that Mexico needed to start defending itself better, which is where I think we saw earlier this year Mexico's decision to switch the ambassador in the United States to name an ambassador who had been at the Mexican embassy in D.C. before, who has, as a former consul general, lots of relationships throughout the United States with the Mexican-American community, but with the business community and with politicians in general to start reshaping how the U.S talks about Mexico, how Mexico is viewed in the United States and the important contributions they've had. And I think, you know, the fallout, the, the, we would say probably certainly aired decision by Peña Nieto um, to invite both um, Mr. Trump as well as Secretary, former Secretary Clinton to Mexico is in relation to this looking at how do we as Mexico, how does Mexico react to what's being said about Mexico in U.S. politics? I would say, and I think most would conclude that the strategy totally backfired, was not well thought out, was not done thinking of how the Mexican population feels about Mr. Trump, including several former presidents of Mexico. And as we saw, also resulted in the alleged mastermind of the plan to invite Trump, Videgaray, um, who is uh, Peña Nieto's finance minister, having to resign last week. So I'm wondering, does President Peña Nieto have any credibility now in Mexico after this uh, debacle with Trump? Peña Nieto didn't have very much to lose, I would say, in a sense, by, by inviting Trump because his popularity is so low. Um, we, 
there was perhaps an expectation this would somehow boost up his popularity. But before Peña Nieto, before Trump had visited, his Peña Nieto's approval ratings were about 23%, which is the lowest of any president in, in recent history. And certainly um, shockingly low for a president who came in with a widespreading agenda that was to you know, provoke change in Mexico and certainly was bought up by a lot of the international media and others that thought, wow, this is Mexico's moment. It, it clearly four years later hasn't been. And so um, I think this didn't help him. Uh, it certainly also resulted in, as we saw, not only Videgaray's resignation, but deep divisions within Peñonetto's cabinet about how these decisions were even made. Um, there are rumors that the foreign minister had wanted to resign. Um, the minister interior was not happy about his visit either. So certainly uh, shows not only what you say, like a weak presidency, but a presidency that has very, that's very divided amongst itself in terms of what do we do? Um, how do we respond to these very challenging political international issues? I'd like to talk about the issue of a weak presidency, because when we talk about the institutional revolutionary party, the PRI, the party that, that Peña Nieto heads by being president, that is a party that we're not used to talking about weak presidents generally, that, that the presidency in Mexico, uh, I realize that we're, we're in the more democratic phase, but it's different for us to be talking about a, a, a priesta leading the country who, who might be seen as weak. And we, we see that Peña Nieto uh, this summer apologized for this, this incident with the contractor, uh, his wife getting a special deal on a on a luxurious house, uh, also very uncommon for a Mexican president, especially a pre-president, to be apologizing for allegations of corruption. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to think. remember that uh, the this pre-party is a party that, this is not the same pre that it was, or, or the country is not the same Mexico that it was when the pre last had the presidency, which they, they lost in elections in 2000. There is a much more diverse political environment. There's a more vibrant civil society. There is more pushback on uh, policies. We, we saw this clearly over the summer when the PRI as a party lost seven governorships of the 12 that were up for grabs in state elections. Um, they, they maintained five governorships but lost several in a sense uh, in backlash to corruption allegations to poor governance to a, a very poor economic situation and continuing violence in the country. So I think this, when, when Peña Nieto took office, there was a sense of PRI has a capacity to be more central, to have more control over um, politics, and certainly was able to get a lot of reforms passed in the first two years of office. But this government has also shown lots of weaknesses. You cannot govern Mexico as a country the same way you govern the state of Mexico, which is where Peña Nieto was governor. And you've seen lots of moves and actions by his advisors that would appear that they think it's like governing a state. And when it's really not, it's much more complex. And you can't try to control your public image, um, which I think is what the government has tried to do, control it the way you used to, um, or ignore allegations of corruption. I think you're right that the population, you know, Peña Nieto had to apologize for corruption allegations because there's been several that are directly linked to himself and to his family. There have been several missteps by the government in um, trying to address security. Homicide rates are higher now than they were, they have been since the beginning of his presidency. There is still lots of 
unresolved cases, including the case of the disappearance of the 43 students from Guerrero. And so there's been several, several things that just don't show uh, a politician that is open and transparent to his population, but has also really taken the steps to move forward to address some of these institutional weaknesses that are you know, resulting in poor governance and poor performance. Let's talk about the security issues, because I remember covering the Mexican election that that brought Peña Nieto into office, and that was what the PRI ran on, that they would fix the security situation, that, that the Panistas had, had let the drug war get out of control. And, and realistically, uh, we really haven't seen the PRI have an answer, any more of an answer than, than the National Action Party, the PAN, when it comes to this issue of national security. No, I think what we have seen is, for the most part, a continuation of the policies implemented by former President Felipe Calderón um, in terms of continuing to use the military and federal police in parts of the country. You certainly have seen several um, well-known ap- detentions of drug kings, uh, kingpins, and certainly El Chapo Guzman, who was captured, escaped, recaptured, all during this government, uh, and also several others that have been taken down or been arrested. But I think what's clear is that's not, that kingpin strategy doesn't work. And it may work in certain areas of calming a situation down for a while, but if you're not going after the structures themselves, if you're not addressing corruption, which has allowed organized criminal groups to flourish in Mexico and penetrate many government structures, particularly at the the municipal level, then you're going to have a continuation of this problem. So what we haven't seen is a real effort to go after those structural issues. I would say perhaps beyond insecurity, corruption, ranked second in Mexico as being something that people are very concerned about. And that inability so far or unwillingness to go after corruption at the level you need it has really continued to result in this level of violence that we see in the country. I think that combined with what we've seen as several incidences of state violence. So we had um, last month, Mexico's Human Rights Commission issuing a report regarding a shootout that happened in May of last year where 42 alleged organized criminals were killed and one police officer was killed. And the Human Rights Commission has concluded that at least 22 of those, I think, were arbitrarily executed. This comes a year after another event where Mexican soldiers were implicated in the extrajudicial execution of 22 alleged criminals. So you also see beyond organized crime-related violence, a lot of state violence and concerning incidents of excessive use of force that have also not been reined in. Haven't these cases of extrajudicial killings in the drug war, um, this is what really has flourished during this particular administration? At least of cases that we know about. And I think, yes, um, and there have been now several cases of alleged extrajudicial executions or proven extrajudicial executions. There, probably the most recent case was the federal police's likely killing of at least eight protesters in Oaxaca in July or June, sorry, in in different protests. So it is certainly suggests a very excessive use of force. But also, if you look particularly at the military case, concern is that there may be even military orders that say your role is to go out and take down criminals. Um, In the case of Tlatlaya, the the massacre of the 22 um, alleged criminals perpetrated by the military in 2014, there it was standing orders for that battalion to patrol at night with the purpose of taking out criminals in the darkness. So again, suggesting that there may even be in some cases direct orders to, to do this. Um, and certainly concerning regarding 
rule of law and due process um, for anybody, including alleged criminals. I'm struck by the fact that just in the last few minutes, you've mentioned four or five of these cases, any one of which would have been um, a national tragedy and, and, a, and a major focus of, of the media um, and extremely embarrassing, if not um, cause for, for people to resign their, their offices. And, and yet from the Ayatsanapa case on, um, we, we haven't really seen um, much, much acceptance of the fact that the state bears some responsibility. No, I think what we've seen for the most part is a denial of state responsibility. The The Mexican government again and again has come out criticizing any international scrutiny over these cases, over grave human rights violations, whether it come from UN bodies to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights to other reports. It's continually trying to say, no, we don't, we don't have a problem, or the problem is not as bad as you think it is, um, and not really accepting the magnitude of the problem. Beyond those 43 students, there are over 28,000 cases of people that have been disappeared or gone missing since 2007. Those are huge numbers um, of families and relatives looking for their loved ones and have no real answers. And you continue to see case after case where these families themselves are going out and finding mass graves in, in the country. So certainly a real um, unwillingness, I think, to to take on this these tough situations to accept that Mexico is going through what we would consider grave human rights crisis um, and start making the policy changes necessary to really investigate those responsible, but work to prevent them from happening again. And we really don't see that happening yet on the ground. Coming up, we'll have more from our discussion with Maureen Meyer on Mexico. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, we feature a Skype discussion with Maureen Meyer of WOLA on Mexico. And as we heard earlier, the legal discussions are ongoing when it comes to deciding the fate of cartel boss Joaquin El Chapo Shorty Guzman. El Chapo's cartel, the Sinaloa cartel, is locked in a fresh round of violence with its competition, especially the Nuevo Generacion Jalisco cartel, a group that kidnapped El Chapo's son. Here's more from our discussion about the drug war in Mexico. Yeah, I think there's certainly a lot of um, questions still regarding the that kidnapping, but there have been um, a idea that there is more competition amongst the, the cartels to look at leadership. We have to remember that Mayo Zambada is still um, very much active in the Sinaloa cartel and probably taking on a, an important, important leadership role. I think it really... Um, depends on which part of Mexico you're talking about to what the surgence of, of violence is due to. There's been violence in Juarez is in the uptick. Again, you may have seen they've actually had more homicides this year than they had of all of 2015. So they're seeing some concerning, again, struggles for, for, for control there. There's also resurgence or increasing power of other organizations. I would say the, the Cartel Nueva Generación Jalisco, allegedly likely involved in, in the kidnapping, 
is certainly pushing to have more dominance. And and again, this goes back to you can arrest high-level leaders, you can work on disbanding some of these organizations, but what we've seen is even with some of those successes of getting rid of some of the larger organizations, small organizations proliferate and end up working at the local level and sometimes become a harder problem to, to tackle and continue to you know, use extortion, use violence, um, and work to control territories. And so I think that goes back again to what are these bigger challenges of Mexico. It's not just detaining and arresting the leaders, but how do you dismantle the, those structures themselves? And I wonder about the role of the United States. The U.S. has been waiting for some months now for the extradition of El Chapo to the United States. How much influence is the current policy in Mexico, the the drug war policy, um, influenced by the United States, in your opinion? I think significantly. I think certainly even that the Kingpin strategy, you could say, was you know, based on U.S. ideas of what needed to happen or looking at what they had, what had worked or not in, in other countries. Um, the U.S. clearly wants El Chapo Guzman, as they also want Caro Quintero, who was uh, released uh, last year, or the previous year from, from prison. Um, and I think beyond the kingpin strategy, the, the U.S. certainly has had a role in how Mexico has adopted its security policies. I think the U.S. has shifted a lot in the past decade on how they're thinking about this. If you look at the way the U.S. cooperation is now, it's much more looking at criminal justice reform, strengthening investigative capacity, how do you work to professionalize the police in Mexico. And so I think not as what we would have thought about it maybe 10 years ago, focused on going after kingpins and interdictions as much as what Mexico needs to, in the long term, have better functioning institutions. I think parallel to that, that we also see these concerning, again, these exportations of U.S. models. So while we have our own Department of Justice working to close privately run prisons, we have Latin American countries, including Mexico, working to expand prisons. And with U.S. support, working to have U.S.-based accreditation of the prison system. And so I think there are these you know, important things the U.S. has been doing to shift its focus to the rule of law in Mexico. But then you have other concerning areas such as supporting prison privatization, which have not produced, I think, the the best results. And in some ways, El Chapo certainly exposed some of the weaknesses in those systems about corruption inside the Mexican prison system. The the, the altiplano where he he escaped was actually accredited. (laughs) You can say the accreditation will only go so far, but you also need to really go after the corruption, which is how he was able to, to, to escape your specialty is uh, border security, and so I wonder, is the drug war the key item for border security, or are there other concerns that you have? I mean, certainly, if you're looking from the U.S. perspective, I think there's this twofold. There's obviously, you know, concern about illicit drugs entering the United States, primarily through the ports of entry, um, and then there's the concern about controlling the flow of um, undocumented migration to the U.S.-Mexico border, and I think particularly from maybe a national security point of view, looking for detecting special interest, people from special interest countries um, from coming into the United States and clearly detaining thousands of Central Americans that are likely now seeking refuge in the United States. And so I think you know, that from the border security point of view, drugs would probably be the, the biggest. But you know, in the end of the day, and looking at the border, migrants are always get caught up in the mix of all of that. And if you look at 
how different agencies report results. If you're the Border Patrol, you report on drug seizures, but also apprehensions of migrants. So it's kind of difficult to, to separate the two. One might argue that um, Republican nominee Donald Trump has built his campaign on the backs of, of unauthorized migrants, but, but we really aren't seeing Mexicans as the main um, migrants now, or mostly Central Americans and others, yes? Yeah, I think Mexican migration has been dropping significantly in recent years. Um, it's now what people consider net zero, which is more people are perhaps even leaving the United States from Mexico than been coming in, or it's about evens itself out. And what we have seen since 2012 has been the slow and then very quick increase in Central American migration. And not just what you would consider economic migrants, but also growing numbers of potential refugees or people that could qualify for some type of international protection given the, the violence that they're fleeing from, from primarily the Northern Triangle countries. And so, yes, I think the, the idea that these are all Mexican migrants is certainly um, aired in terms of who the recent border crossers are, and they're much more um, in the category of other than Mexicans and primarily Central Americans than, than the Mexicans that were the historically highest number of undocumented migrants arriving in the United States. We've been critical here of U.S. policy and not producing um, a better Mexico in, in how um, we talk about security, we talk about migration, we talk about other issues. I, I wonder, in your opinion, are those State Department policies, are they really flowing through uh, Vice President Biden's office or, or President Obama's office? President Obama has been lauded as having a, a great Latin American policy portfolio to show uh, when he finishes his time in office. But, but I wonder if Mexico is a bit of an outlier when we consider the rest of Latin America. You know, I think Mexico is a big challenge when we look at how the U.S. relates to the region because it's our neighbor, it's a shared border, and we have very important economic and trade which is interest um, at a level that you don't see with other countries in the region. So I think it's been, and Mexico pushes back more, which is good in many reasons, and it critiques the United States on issues of like how our border patrol treats migrants. Um, but I think that the dynamic is very different than other countries in the region. And so whereas the U.S. may, in a sense, be able to more easily dictate um, cooperation or policies to Central American countries or press the Central American countries, what you see in the U.S.-Mexico relation is much more a hesitancy to weigh in on some of these more difficult issues at the level that you see in other countries, or at least weigh in on them publicly. So I think we, you know, in our line of work, when we look at issues of human rights violations, for example, where the international community has widely condemned Mexico for mass, mass disappearances, generalized use of torture in the country and others, and where you see the U.S. when you have public meetings with Mexican officials never raise human rights concerns um, and for the most part prefer to talk about these issues privately and delicately with the Mexican government. And so I think it's always been a challenging relationship and I will say, going back to the discussion about the elections, having a presidential candidate that has made so many disparaging comments against Mexicans and Mexican-Americans has also made tactic, um, addressing these issues more complicated, I would say, with the Mexican government. Because you have someone as a presidential candidate that is having very damaging, I think, views of 
Mexicans, and it certainly has a damage on the Mexican-U.S. relationship. And, and diplomatically, when you have, you know, Vice President Biden went down to Mexico almost apologizing for, for these comments. And so I think it is a tough moment for the U.S. and Mexico to be discussing these issues. But I think it's always been hard for the U.S. to address um, these longer, larger concerns on corruption, on weak institutions, on human rights violations at a level, the same level they do with, with other countries in the region. Thank you so much. Our guest today, Maureen Meyer of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, .org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse, and thanks to the production assistance this week of Sarah Boyd. For associate producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Yeah.